Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, March 27th, 2023. History is a funny thing. Uh, we always think of it as beginnings or ends, and sometimes we forget about the thing in itself, the middle. Take the Soviet Union. We've been doing a number of shows on the Soviet Union, but always as a beginning or an end. Did a show last year with the historian Vladislav Zubok on the death of the Soviet Union called Collapse, the fall of the Soviet Union, which he suggests it's not really dead, that its legacy continues. Uh, but we forget to talk about the Soviet Union itself. Did a similar sort of conversation last week with a young uh, British journalist uh, and writer, novelist, Kristen Loesch, who has fictionalized and feminized the history of 20th century Russia in her new novel, The Last Russian Doll, but sees, a, sees the Soviet Union as the thing that existed between the revolution and the collapse of communism and forgets about the Soviet Union itself. So many of the shows see the Soviet Union as dead, but still alive. Catherine Belton, for example, the FT journalist who got sued by Putin, uh, wrote a book on KGB capitalism, uh, Putin's people, how the, KJ, how the KGB took back Russia and then took the West. It's a book about Putin, but it's also a book about the Soviet Union, which leaves out the Soviet Union. We have done a few shows on the collapse in economic terms. We did one with uh, a journalist, Natasha Rogoff, on Muppets in Moscow, which talks about the struggle to transform the Russian cultural and media economy from the old Soviet system to a post-communist uh, neoliberal one which failed. Um, we have done a few shows on what life was like in the Soviet Union, one with a uh, a novelist, uh, a young woman called Ray Meadows, wrote a book called Winterland, which imagines what um, the Soviet Union was like in 1973 for gym gymnasts in Siberia. We also did um, a show a few months ago with a very distinguished American photographer, Arthur Grace, uh, who photographed communism. He went to the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe many times during the Soviet Empire and came out with a book called Communism's A Cold War Album. It's a wonderful book and it was a wonderful conversation. Today we're bringing together photographs and texts about that thing in itself, the Soviet Union, uh, with one of the world's leading historians, particularly of 20th century communism, Karl Schlogel. He normally lives in Berlin and teaches at a university there, but uh, we're catching up with him in Bern, Switzerland. He has a new book out. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, a prize-winning book, The Soviet Century, Archaeology of a Lost World. And he's joining us, as I said, from Bern in Switzerland. Uh, Karl, this word archaeology uh, sticks out, shall we say, as a, uh, as the subtitle of the new book. Did you need to become an archaeologist in order to understand the Soviet century? In a sense, were you like those archaeologists who dig up the pyramids or uh, 
uh, old Roman or Greek cities? Yeah, I think so. It's not only a metaphor to be an archaeologist. I mean, it's my experience traveling decades since the 60s on the territory of the former Soviet Union and traveling a lot and collecting materials and now digging in some places which are, in my view, characteristic for the history of Russia in the 20th century, mostly of Russia, not only Russia. And uh, what I want to say is I was interested in dig out the places which are characteristic for the way of life, of Soviet life. And it's not only a history of political structures, of decision-making, of party programs, but of uh, everyday life. But not only in a naive sense, everyday life, uh, like uh, cookbooks, perfumes, fragrances, scents, soundscapes, but also the landscape of violence, the landscape of the campus, of the camps of the Gulag. And I mean, I have been uh, traveling uh, uh, also with my students in places like Solovki Islands, the first camp, concentration camp of the Soviet Union. I've been in Far East, in Magadan, the place where the Soviets in the, in the 30s created um, the gold uh, and digged uh, uh, gold and uh, created one of the biggest uh, factories uh, and mines of, of gold. So uh, I was interested to understand how the country ticks, how uh, the temporality, how the space of this vast empire. Um, and it's not uh, only, as I said, a, a political story of uh, parties, of uh, ideology, of doctrines, etc., but um, mainly of places, of kitchens, of construction sites like, for instance, Dneprogez, one of the biggest dams uh, in the 20th century, created with assistance of American engineers in the late 20s, early 30s. Uh, I was interested, for instance, in the story of the big house uh, on the Mos Moskva embankment in Moscow, it was uh, one of the, of the um, uh, houses for the elite, for the Kremlin elite, uh, kind of uh, uh, a privileged place in the 30s, but at the same time, it became a trap for people who lived there and a huge percentage of the inhabitants of this house uh, had been killed during the purges in, in the 30s. And uh, there has been a wonderful book about this house on, on the Moskva embankment uh, by a colleague of mine, Yuri Slyoskin. So the main intention was 
to come to terms with the way of life I have experienced since the 60s in different stages. Uh, when I was the first time in the 60s as a young student, just uh, discovering the country beyond the Iron Curtain. Uh, and then in the 80s, uh, the time of stagnation, of decomposition, of, uh, of reconsidering and rethinking uh, Soviet history. I mean, I, very early I had contact with the friends and colleagues from the Memorial Society, which, uh, which was uh, one of the main centers for, for opening archives, collecting materials and uh, rewriting history. And uh, now, as we know, uh, most members of um, Memorial have been persecuted. Uh, a great number of uh, members of this pioneer organization has left the country, is now living in Riga or in Berlin or in, or in Amsterdam and in other places. Uh, they were forced to leave the country. So I had, I went through different stages of Soviet life. Uh, the 60s, this was a time of, uh, yeah, of uh, de-Stalinization, of uh, time of, of the so-called uh, 60 generation, uh, of, uh, of uh, the emerging movement of, of dissidents, and uh, then the 80s, the time of uh, stagnation, and then the turbulent times of the late 80s and the 90s, when we uh, foreigners, students, diplomats living in Moscow experienced uh, fantastic uh, and of course also hard times uh, of chaos, of uh, black markets, of bazaars, and um, you had, uh, you, you could feel that the empire was disintegrating, uh, but it was a mixture of chaos and, and discovery, chaos and finding and looking for new ways. It was the first time that we could move around in, in uh, post-Soviet Russia, you could just take a train or a plane to go to places where you never could be before because they were closed areas. And I remember very well that uh, in the late uh, 80s, when I traveled, for instance, to Nizhny Novgorod, which was a closed city, I was uh, received by by people from KGB, and they said, what are you looking for? And I told them, Nizhny, which is one of the great metropolitan and uh, fair places in, in pre-revolutionary Russia, and one of, uh, it was called the Detroit on the Volga River, because uh, there was a big uh, car factory. So I just was interested to go yeah, around. You bring, uh, it, you, you bring 
this lost world to light. Um, it's already been, the, the book has already been acclaimed. You promise um, to, to resurrect, in a sense, what it looked and felt and smelt and sounded like in the Soviet Union. Um, it casts, according to the, the publisher Weekly Review, it casts a lost world in a new light. You, one of your previous books was called In Space We Read Time on the History of Civilization and Geopolitics. The Soviet Union, of course, was a physical place and was the last perhaps really pre-globalized physical entity. Um, coming back to this idea of In Space We Read Time, Carl, how did that theme play out in terms of your archaeology of, of the Soviet Union? Yeah, I think uh, to read uh, time and space, uh, I think it's uh, uh, an elementary or even banal, I should say, uh, idea, but uh, which is interesting that uh, history and historiography for quite a long time has forgotten to understand that history takes place, takes place in a very, uh, in a very sense. Every uh, historical development, all processes we are discussing, all uh, evolutions, revolutions, they take place in a literal sense. And that means if you want to understand history, you have to, to go to these places. You have to understand the space in which all these events take place. And we have a quite um, fantastic uh, tradition in historiography, like the French analyst uh, school, uh, understanding the very close relationship between history and geography, between time and space. And so I was always interested, for instance, in, in um, moving around, describing and analyzing public, public spaces, public squares, the styles of architecture, of um, the different layers of, the, of an urban development. So you can read, you can decipher the the different layers of the history on site. For instance, in, in Moscow, when I was in uh, first time, usually tourists visit Red Square and the mausoleum, but at the same time, you could discover layers which have been ignored, for instance, delayed the booming Moscow in pre-revolutionary times with fantastic villas of uh, Art Deco and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the modern style. You had uh, huge and, and wonderful ensembles of industrial architecture. Or if you go to Siberia, uh, I would say that the hardships uh, and the violence of the Stalin camps, you cannot understand if you have not an idea of what is... Yeah, going. that physical. I was in uh, Kazakhstan um, uh, last year. I went to one of the recreated gulags. It's a very bracing experience. Is there 
Carl, perhaps particularly in terms of the history of the Soviet century, is there an ideology of space? Is they believe they, they seem to be the last civilization that believed in space, which is why they cut the country off. You weren't allowed to visit. People within the Soviet Union weren't allowed to exit. Uh, they protected space. It's the reverse of America. Yeah. I mean, this is a great question for historians. Why uh, space has this importance for Russian historiography? Why they did not accept some borders? Why they even fought for taking uh, space in, on the other continent, in, in, in Alaska? Uh, why did they go up to San Francisco, to the Russian Hill? This is a great question. What are the driving uh, motivations for going, going, going east? Uh, and, but I would say there's a great difference. Uh, I mean, America was also going west, but they had the ability to master space, to create uh, to, to master space and to create territories and to create infrastructures. If you go uh, by train or uh, in, in, in the former Soviet Union, you could go from the western border up to the Pacific Ocean. There were no borders. Uh, there were no infrastructure except the Trans-Siberian uh, Railway or plane, uh, airplanes, but uh, this huge space, the, the political, the society, and I would say the political power had never the potential to really to integrate these huge spaces. Uh, they had the, poten the potential to dominate, to rule, to create some uh, posts uh, uh, to to create some some centers, but to integrate these vast spaces up to to the Bering Straits, uh, it was impossible. And it's I would say it's still a problem of uh, post-Soviet Russia. How can they? use, not only exploit, but really integrate these vast uh, spaces. And so there's <clears throat> a lot of uh, myth and myth-making and ideology and, uh, for instance, the comeback of the ideological and theoretical uh, uh, interpretations of the Eurasianists, uh, group of intellectuals of the 20s who, which, uh, which uh, developed the idea that uh, Russian culture, in fact, is uh, beyond European and beyond Eurasian, but a specific, a specific um, uh, and distinct uh, civilization, the Eurasian civilization, which does not belong to Europe and does not belong to to Asia. So sometimes I have the feeling that these ideas these ideas are, are coming back 
Uh, yeah, um, everything comes back. That was the point of my introduction. We we need to trap the Soviet Union between the past and the future, Carl. Um, the subtitle of the book is Archaeology of a Lost World. The irony, of course, is in a way, there's nothing lost about this world. In a way, much of the cultural achievements in, in cinema, in theater, in poetry, in photography, in fiction writing, it all comes out of the Soviet Union. So there's, a, there's an odd thing about this Soviet century, seems to me. On the one hand, we know everything about it. And on the other hand, we know nothing. What challenge in particular does that bring a historian like yourself who's interested in the, who, who's, who's, who's meticulously interested in the, in the, in the minutiae of day-to-day -day life? You want to save it, save Soviet Union from the headlines, from the ideologists of one kind or another. I think that the time of the Soviet Union, we have fragments now. We have a Soviet, uh, post-Soviet Russia, which uh, with all these, uh, these uh, symbols, the iconography which has been formed in the Soviet Union and in the pre-Soviet time, the Tsarist Empire especially. But these are fragments and I do not believe that it will be possible to reintegrate or to recreate the Soviet space. And if we look at the ideology which is now dominating in the media sphere and the public space in, in, in Russia today, you have a hybrid, you have a, a mixture and a composition of very, very different ideas. You have, uh, um, you have uh, an apology of white generals at the same time with uh, the praise of, of Stalin. You have, mm. in a way, uh, you, uh, you have... Uh, the, the, the praise of, of the Russian culture, but at the same time, at the same time, uh, the postmodern uh, postmodern vocabulary. Uh, so, or, or the combination of uh, orthodox uh, values, beliefs, and and, and pre-modern or postmodern. So we have something different, and I cannot imagine that um, or we don't see a, a utopia or a, a prospect or a perspective for recreating. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like, Carl, you're, you're, you're sailing your ship, your Soviet century, through the, 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 the twin challenges of utopia and dystopia. So for you as a historian, is the Soviet century always fragmentary? Should we be careful about any version which attempts to get beyond fragment? Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, what is going on now is uh, something which is not interested in uh, stability and uh, keeping the status of, of uh, the former Soviet Union, but it's, it's uh, power-driven by fear of decomposition of uh, pro pro progress of disintegration and some discussions especially in the 
in the Russian diaspora are going on on, on the perspective and the future of, of Russia, which, uh, which even thinks that the, the disintegration of Russia today will go on. And that means that we have different regions, different... Uh, um, we cannot imagine what kind of, of relationships between the different parts of Russia, between the rich ones and the poor ones, between the orthodox and the Islamic uh, parts of, of, the, of, of Russia. We have no idea and uh, I have the impression that Putin is uh, is uh, is playing this card of fear of future of uh, mm. coming civil war or and 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 he's playing the card of of that the West the collective West is attacking uh, uh, and contain containing Russia. Yeah, be so, interesting, Carl. I'd love a book by you. Such a great historian on on Putin. You've already written one on on Ukraine, which is one of the most acclaimed histories of, of Ukraine. The book promises to um, offer the smells of the Soviet Union. Usually, I would be a little skeptical of that, but you're the author of a magnificent history, the scent of empires, Chanel Number no. Five and Red Moscow, a previous best-selling acclaimed book. What did the Soviet Union? smell like, Carl. Uh, can, it always seems as if the middle period gets lost. We can only imagine it smelling remarkably youthful or remarkably decrepit. But for most of the Soviet Union, it was neither of those. Is that fair? Uh, it seems very strange that the historian is dealing with scents and, and, and fragrances, etc. But in fact, um, History has to, to do, or historiography has to do with all uh, senses, uh, with uh, uh, the eyes, with ears, with audioscapes, with visual uh, worlds, and also with sense. And I mean, uh, all the experience I had moving from where I lived in West Berlin to East Berlin, crossing the Iron Curtain, there was a different soundscape, and I just uh, discovered that um, the, the parallel histories of uh, Chanel Number no. Five and, uh, and Red Moscow, which are quite uh, uh, interrelated, because the French factories and the French tradition of making fragrances, they had. Uh, big factories in Tsarist. Yeah, it's a remarkable book. Um, let's end, uh, Carl. Obviously, it's an enormous book, uh, a huge amount in it, magnificent achievement. Congratulations. Uh, I think it's going to be a book that will be read and reread, reinterpreted. But finally, you're a man of enormous erudition and experience in this world. What, in, in terms of researching, thinking, and writing this book, what surprised you? What did you learn in writing this book that you didn't already know about the Soviet Union? In other words, what did you dig up that really shocked you? You thought to yourself, you scratched your head and thought, wow, I never expected to find that. I was, uh, I have to say, I was uh, 
shocked by what has happened in 2014. And uh, that I could not imagine that this will happen. And so this book in a certain way is my personal um, essay or trial to come to terms with the long durée of the Soviet civilization or, or the Soviet way of life. And it became clear to me that the end of, of an empire is not only a decision by some people made up uh, in, in, in the leadership of a country, but um, empires took form and have been shaped for decades and for many, many generations. And it will take time also and probably quite violent time uh, to get out of the framework of, of the former empire. I would say the time of the empire is over and it's a great problem of, of Russia to find a way out of the trap of going back uh, to the empire. But the book is about, yeah, about making a specific civilization uh, which, uh, uh, which uh, obviously could not survive. And I was eyewitnessing the end of, of the Soviet Union and the process of dissolution and demolishing. And so, um, and uh, I don't know uh, when and how the post-post-empire, uh, 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 imperial Russia would take shape. I have no idea. And so um, the end of the book is to create a musée imaginaire, as André Malraux has called it, a museum where these pages and these fragments of the former empire are somehow collected so we can visit, so we can view and uh, say farewell in a certain way, to say farewell uh, to a, a social system and to a political system which obviously was not able to to survive. And uh, my wish is only that the process of coming to an end will be will be somehow moderated and not end in a total disaster. But it looks now very bad what we see in, in Ukraine, uh, which is, uh, which I, I think uh, 10 or 20 years, we could not imagine that, uh, that these, these explosion of, uh, of violence and open declared war uh, will go on and that the end of the Soviet Union. I mean, a colleague of mine, Stephen Kotkin, has, has written a book about Armageddon. Uh, the Armageddon did not take place in the 90s and I hope that it will not take place now in our days.